And it's not like an easy input-output machine where it's like, you input trial and suffering and I will output sweet life lessons. Sincerely, God. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by Dave Living Large Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? Good. I feel like I'm living large. I'm on three days of nothing but ribeyes, Gomer. <laughs> and I feel like I could come through the screen and just body slam you right now, just for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> oh, man. Can I tell you a little yeah. secret about the old carnivore diet that I didn't yeah. realize? Yeah. Is when you go off it because of family celebrations where there is cake and ice cream, you never want to go back on again. So I'm in a downward spiral of sorrow. It's bad. It is. It's bad. Ugh. And it's the worst diet of all to bounce back and forth. To yo- we talked about this. Right? Oh, yeah, we did. The yo-yo. Yeah. It's the worst. But yeah. it's so great when you're, when you're feeling the flow and you're eating oh those my ribeyes. Oh, my brain. It feels like a different person. Yeah. Also, speaking of ribeyes, we have Father Gregory Pine joining us today. <laughs> How you doing, Father Gregory? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, I appreciate that. Seamless transition. <laughs> I too identify myself with ribeyes. So, <laughs> nice, nice. So, what have you been up to? You are back what, from. Gomer, we we realized the last time that we saw each other was at a football game in intramurals mm. at Franciscan. <laughs> that was the last time you did. Who won? I think they did. I'll just say they. Yeah, I have yeah. no memory of it. So, were you a yeah. prefi? Were you in the prefi allegate program? I was not in the prefi allegate program. I was a disciple of the word, which is like a ragtag bunch of nerds, scrubs, rejects, pariahs, and social ingrates. But occasionally, we would recruit like talented athletes, mm-hmm. and nice. that, that helped. Nice. I remember there were some big guys on that team. I remember. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. There's some crazy guys. I don't know if you guys talk about Joe Cipriano every once in a while. I, I love that I guy. Love Joe. Yeah, just kind, of, just kind of a wild man. He like yeah. one time wrote a little encouraging note to be read at a volleyball game because he couldn't be there, though he was the team captain. <laughs> That's awesome. And he wrote it in like, I don't know what kind of crayon, but it was a crazy crayon. And he also taped it shut with a used Band-Aid. And I was like, <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be yeah. like you, but like in a different way. Right. If that makes sense. Right. I would have the self-confidence, but uh. less of the used Band-Aids. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. But more of the crayons. Yeah, so we brought you on the show today. We want to get caught up on your life. You are an interesting, fascinating human person that that came forth from the mothership, just like we did. Yeah, and you have been in some fancy place over in Europe for the last, was it two years? Two years? Three, in fact. Three. Time flies. I remember when you left, we all wept. Uh, I mean, I was watching Pints of the Quinas, so you didn't know. But, uh, you know, America (laughs) got a little dimmer that day. So what? tell the good folks what you were up to over over yonder in Europa. Yeah. So I, I moved to Switzerland, where I got a major in fancitude and a minor in Christology. I was there studying at the University of Freiburg, which is a little backwater town. Oops, people from there probably wouldn't like me calling it a little backwater town. It's European, so that way, I mean, it's infinitely more dignified than anything American. Now I've appeased the <laughs> oh, European gods. Oh, you have yeah. just offended Now for my real thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, as I drink a note, don't tread on me cup. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's a little place near other little places and far away from big places. And I basically holed up in my room and lived as if under a rock for three straight years mm. with my books and my thoughts and my incapacity to write coherent things, mm. which, by the way, is brutal. If you ever think you know a thing, try to write the thing. And then you realize not only do you not know the thing, but you would prefer to be hit by a bus than yeah. come up against that recognition <laughs> yes. for uh, the next several months of your life. Yeah, it was great. And I wrote a dissertation and I deposited it. And then I have to go back and defend it at a certain point in the fall to be determined. Now, when you say go back and defend it, I imagine that there's like a single printed copy at your own expense that's sitting in the, on a stool in the <laughs> middle of the room and all your professors line around you and with like chains and boards with nails sticking <laughs> out of them and you have to fight. You don't yeah, have to kill anyone, but awesome. you yourself, the book has to remain yeah intact yeah so (laughs) you probably heard that the swiss guards master like 38 different weapons so in the course of this defense all 38 weapons are used including the halberd uh, or halberd or however it's pronounced i think it's halliburton yeah that one (laughs) yep so dick cheney shows up (laughs) i mean mean, things get wild (laughs) yeah so it's mostly i give a little 30 minute presentation on what i wrote about and then five professors tell me that You'll never amount to anything in life. I generally agree with them, and then we all move on. <laughs> <laughs> they give you a piece of paper. It says something yeah. in Latin. 
Yada, yada, yada. And they say, if you ever publish anything in the future, dissociate yourself from us and this institution. Right. It's in everyone's best interest. And I say, yes, of course. Yes. Will it be in English? It will be in French. Oh, boy. No, no, no. Will it be in English? Not is it in English? <laughs> will you painstakingly translate your own words? Yeah, you better believe it. And I'll do that for the rest of my life because that's the best way to like manage in an academic setting is to constantly translate between or among French, English, and German just to show that you can. Because regardless of whether or not there's content or insight in anything that you do, you have to show them that you have a mastery of the tools because life is all about the tools. It is. Ooh. It is. Yeah. Ooh. Man, that's crazy. What you said about <laughs> you think you know something, try to write about it. Oh, I have I like 17 time. chapter ones yeah. of, of 17 <laughs> yeah. different books. I'm like, I'm a smart guy. I can do this. And then I sit down. I'm like, <laughs> I have poured all I know and right. it's six pages. Right. In large font with generous margins. How does that yeah. happen? Yeah. I feel the same way. Somebody was just telling me that they're writing a book and, and Scott Hahn has been like kind of like guiding them. His only tip to them to start out was don't write everything you know in your first book. And I'm like, mm. what if you wrote everything you know in the first in the introduction to the book? <laughs> I wrote a blurb. It was a blurb <laughs> on someone else's book. That was it. <laughs> Yeah, it is brutal. It is brutal. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on The Good Show today, as we are transitioning ever more into different gender roles, but also uh, <laughs> different topics, Ooh. I don't know, different topics for the season. This season, we are going through Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body-ish in order to kind of tackle and evangelize this age, right? Um, yeah. The major sexual medical issues that kind of lay out before us. And we're going to bring on a handful of experts and we want to talk about these things, especially those that are way outside our purview, to talk about these things with people who are, who, who know a lot more than we do, especially in the context of evangelizing, making disciples. But one of the things that we always return to, and this is something that I feel like the Catholic Church at the parish level and the diocesan level, honestly, loses is it's all for winning souls for Christ, right? It's not about winning culture wars unless winning the culture wars are about winning souls for Christ, mm -hmm. right? Because then, like, I don't have to have a hidden agenda. My agenda is your salvation, whether I'm talking to an individual or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a law passed or whatever. Like, I think these things are ultimately working for the good for those who love God, right? We use the theology of the body in order to kind of help focus our otherwise unfocused thoughts in, into evangelizing the culture. Cause that's what I think he did. Right. Yeah. That's what I think the theology of the body is the stating in a positive way of the church's perennial teaching on human sexuality and exploring new areas of personalism and, and some of his stuff. So yeah. I want to take your profound knowledge of sitting in a room by yourself, trying to write <laughs> and, and just talk about specifically, what does it mean to think and this is the broadest way I can possibly put it. Think Christologically. How do you put Christ at the center of your thoughts? Right. So I have a couple of thoughts, maybe three, and then you can choose which of them you find interesting slash merit following up on, or we can find all of them uninteresting and follow up on, you know, Philadelphia sports teams. So the first one is when it, when it comes to like thinking Christologically, I would say that like we're thinking about God, not just the sense that, all right, you're a Christian, you can only think about so many things, you're limited, so you should absolutize or optimize and make all of your thoughts direct towards the Most High God, because otherwise they're basically a waste insofar as they're not the best they could be. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that in all things, you're kind of seeking the face of God in the sense that it's cool to know things about the Philadelphia 76ers and cap space and trade deadlines and other things besides. But unto what end, right? Are there parts of our lives that ought remain in the shadows or in the darkness because... Yeah, when the light shines on them, not only are they uninteresting, but they're also unrelated, so it's best that we just kind of exclude them from the light. No, I think that most Christians, at, at a certain level, they realize that everything need be placed before the radiance of his countenance. And I think that Christological, like, it means kind of breaking open the conversation of our lives to Christ, because most of us wake up, and then we start conducting a conversation with ourselves about ourselves. We're like, Holy smokes, I am fatigued. What did I eat last night? Slash, when's the last time I had a cigar? Slash, why is my like heart rate so elevated? How many cups of coffee am I going to permit myself to have today? Because while I will need some large number of cups of coffee in order to get through the day, I will also be risking tomorrow night's sleep. And then that will creep over the day like a, a warm glove of anxiety. And I will have to, you know, dot, dot, dot. So it's terrible. But like the idea is that we can actually break that conversation open to Christ so that you can wake up and you might still have the first thought, you know, like the same first thought as you would otherwise, like, wow terrible life. It's just absolutely terrible. But then you can, you know, kind of conclude that thought with comma, 
Jesus, your thoughts? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think like, I don't think a morning offering is a matter of, you know, mental gymnastics and self-deception. Like, wow, what a great opportunity to live my little snuggly life with my little snuggly Jesus. It's like, no, there are three people that feel that way in the whole wide world. And the rest of us, if we say that, we're lying or we're pretending. And yeah, there's some space in the Christian life for pretending. But I think that honesty can actually be a healthy way forward. So thinking Christologic, I think first is like thinking with Christ, like thinking unto Christ and putting things before the glory of his face and seeing kind of how they stand up or don't. I can sometimes be a runaway train. So rather than formulating two more points and talking for 14 minutes, I might pause right there and then just say your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love that. I think, I think your first point, you know, about, especially about like the 76ers, you can know things about 76ers, but to what end? I don't remember what stage I was kind of in my conversion, but... Pope John Paul wrote a letter, or I, I don't think it was an encyclical or something, but he was talking about the Eucharist, and he was talking about blades of grass, how they can be understood in light of the Eucharist. And I remember thinking it was life-changing for me because I was like, you're right. Every single bit of this leads to that moment of communion with Christ, and I can see everything within that context. So I, I love it. I, it's, it's a freeing thought. Yeah. I was recently at the Sisters of Life Perpetual Profession. Uh, which is very beautiful. And I was just thinking about things, praying through things in the course of the actual profession itself, because it is long, uh, maybe like two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. That's a made up number, but let's say two hours. That's probably a more modest estimate. Yeah, I just kept kind of coming back to the prayer. Free me from my hidden faults. Never let me sin through pride. It's not like the most profound thing to utter. I just had a sense for the kind of disintegration of my life, not in the sense that it's like wildly disintegrated, but in the sense that... uh like you can kind of compartmentalize right. and you can hang your hat on things which are less than the Lord. Yeah, because I think a lot of us in our relationship with the Lord, while we might express it in terms of friendship and spousal intimacy, all of which are true, I think a lot of us feel it kind of like showing up for work and that's okay. But then there's a kind of risk that it, yeah, it loses some of the savor of the intimacy and the spousal love with which we ought ultimately to treat it or want to treat it. Yeah. I was just thinking of that in, in terms of my own faults, which kind of obscure that fact for me or, or keep me from entering into it fully. And it was beautiful just in the, you know, in the setting of a mass where these women are giving their lives in a very generous way and doing so with smiles on their faces. And meanwhile, I'm over here, you know, somewhat cynical or, or jaded by disposition thinking, oh, wait till it comes for you. <laughs> Jesus is going to take, and then he's going to take, and then he's going to take, and then at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to be left is him. And you're going to be like, do I actually want you? Because yeah. you are such, you're something else. I tell you what, you know? And I, th I mean, I hope at the end of the day that we can respond yes, because in him you have everything. But yeah, I think that it can often cash out in very, very simple, simple ways. Mm -hmm. And it has to. Otherwise, yeah, it never really gets started. There, there's a young woman, woman that I'm working through her discipleship issues. And we meet at a Denny's, which is the greatest place on the face of the earth. If you haven't been, number one, they charge way too much. But other <laughs> than that, for what you get. But other than that, it's, it's fine. One of the comments, well, actually, the main reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because of almost exactly what you said on your own without any prompting from me which is what for so many people a relationship with our lord and, and this is a comment i'm hearing more and more often a relationship with our lord feels like an abusive spouse where you are told all of these things about how wonderful he is then life gets rough and you're told well you need to ignore the rough stuff because he still loves you and then you read the lives of the saints to try to make sense of it. And it's like, yeah, well, he's stripping you of all of these things so that you'll learn to cling to him. When I hear that enough, and I've heard that probably by five different people in the last maybe two months in their own experiences. And, and this young woman that I'm talking about in particular, her experience is acute. It is horrific. It is all the right people were doing all the wrong things to her in the name of God. So there's a lot to process there. But for her, it was like, I still want to be faithful, yeah. but he hasn't said a word to me. And if he's my friend, why hasn't he said a word to me? And it's like Job's friends. Like, I have nothing to say that can provide comfort, honestly. But she's looking for answers. She's not looking to blame God. She's looking for answers. And in one yeah. of those things that I found it was a faulty flaw in her thinking through these things was she had accepted, and this might sound so stupid and abstract, but it, it was one of the core problems. She accepted penal substitutionary atonement as in the, in the full Jansenist 
Catholic version, which is like God the Father beat the heck out of Jesus Christ on the cross. All he saw was our sin. He destroyed him. It made him happy to destroy him. And she was despairing over salvation. How could I love a father like this, which is so reminiscent of my father, right? And so I don't know how to speak Christologically into that profound hurt. Like I hold up the cross and say, you know, obviously he suffered with you. And I tried to connect that, but it's like, yeah, but if he really loved me, he would take away the pain or he would have prevented it from ever happening. And she's not looking for a providence argument and, you know, the metaphysical kind of thing of whatever, of human freedom and God's sovereignty. She's looking for why does this guy that everyone tells me is better than a lover stood by while I was destroyed or, you know. So these are the hard questions that I think comes up in evangelization that it's like, I know we can't answer those right now, but like we can gesture to them. It's the old Cardinal Ratzinger. I'm not going to be comprehensive. This isn't the volume for which we should do that. However, I will sketch out some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Heuristics and adumbrations. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like I've been thinking about that recently. I don't know that I've been thinking about it clearly or coherently, but I've been thinking about it often, which, you know, is the, the last, what, refuge of a disorganized thinker. I did it much. (laughs) I don't know if I was doing it right, but I did it a lot. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I've thought about this a lot. My inside thought goes, I don't care. Quality (laughs) is not quantity. Regardless. But um, I was thinking about some some of the the saints who will describe our relationship with the Lord Jesus in, in terms that sound almost abusive or even violent. Yeah. So this idea, like he wounds us so that he might heal us. My instinctual reaction to that is, nah, not interested. You know, just like, no thanks. Yeah. Because... While at a certain age, you can be like, let's get pumped. And then you start experiencing it. And you're like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no bueno. No gracias. Especially, you know, especially when people whom you love die in terrible circumstances. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, no, I need something more than religious poetry. I need something that actually has purchase on my life. And in those circumstances, I think like what I have found to be the case in my own experience and what, what, what may or may not resonate with others is that the Lord is going to continue to invite you into life. I was reading Jacques Philippe's book, Called to Life, recently, and he says, yeah, he's, he's calling you to life. And that is a terrible prospect. Because, yeah, you can advance a kind of Buddhist objection. Isn't it God's responsibility to minimize suffering? Well, yeah, okay, maybe. But, but in that case, there's no sense in a material world. Because in a material world, one thing is always going to build itself up by the destruction of another. Not because it's like nature, red in tooth and claw, but because of the law of conservation of matter. You can take a kind of healthy distance from it and just say... Yeah, animals eat plants, and you know carnivores eat animals, and dot, dot, dot. So if we bracket the Buddhist objection and say, this is what we're dealing with. God is not motivated by best possible world. He's motivated by love. And is this a setting in which love can unfold? And then you look at it and say, okay, how is it that the Lord's inviting me to life? Because you know, picture yourself kind of huddled up in a quarter of your house, and the Lord's knocking at the door, and he's saying, cross the threshold. And you say, Lord, if I leave my home I will be set about by all kinds of craziness and difficulty, trial, temptation, sorrow, and just like back-breaking hurt. And he says, I know that. And then you say, but why can't I just stay home? And he say, your heart will be narrowed to the confines of your, of your domestic setting, you know, but if you go abroad, your heart will come to encompass greater things still. And not in the sense of like, the point of this life is to, yeah, but just, just think about it simply. Like there are things that lie in store, things that, that are for your good, and you will be hurt. By virtue of the fact that you have left home, like you can get in a car accident and you can have your catalytic converter stolen, especially if you live in Chicago and dot, 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 all these things. But you're called to life. Ultimately, you're called to life. And I've just been yeah, thinking about that and kind of grappling with that because oh. <laughs> I don't want to sound too disaster scapey, but life is so sad. It's just so sad. Are you in a melancholic mood? What happened in Freeburg? <laughs> what has happened in Freeburg? <laughs> Freiburg, it's Freeburg, not whatever. Fault. It's not your fault. Oh, it's, it's not your not fault. Your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I just, we need Thank to you. go full Robin Williams. <laughs> Two things about what you just said. The first is I so interesting about one of the things like over the last four years when my wife was just suffering horribly and literally just her worst fears that she even named, right? And she was having to, to see them. I remember times where I was like, I feel like I should apologize to the saints because I assigned like a weird machismo to the suffering that they, yeah. you know, you read about it and you're like, yeah, right? Like, let's go get martyred, right? That kind of thing. <laughs> and then you- I got all my get, fingers. Let's go full Isaac look, Jokes here, exactly. baby. Exactly, <laughs> right, right. And then you get hammered by- suffering and you're like whoa this isn't heroic this isn't like 
amazing. I mean, of course it is, but like, it's not, you don't feel that way. You just, it's just bad. Right. And like, I took so much away from them, which we always do with the saints, right? Like we whitewash their life constantly. Yeah. But that was like something that came up over and over and over again. Like, like thinking about, you know, my favorite saints, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Gemma Galgani, right. Those, those two saints just like suffered unbelievably. Right. And I kind of like made them into like, I don't know, a superhero or something like that. The second thing was, I don't remember, I think it was called to life, but called to life, there's, or might, might have been School of the Holy Spirit by Father Jacques Philippe, but one of those two books helped me more than anything get through suffering because there was one phrase, and I was thinking about this when you were talking about this girl, Gomer, is like, I desperately wanted to wrap my head around it intellectually, like mm-hmm. the idea of suffering in my children, right? With Max in particular, this is what, it was, it was this night. And I remember putting him to bed one night and they were talking and and I remember Max saying, just real whispering, like, I wish I could walk like you, Sam. And it yeah. was a, it was like the worst night ever, right? It was like yeah. so awful. You told me that when it happened and I think I've cried like 10 times yeah. when it, that it was terrible. It was re- It really was one of the worst things that ever happened to me, yeah. right? And I read one, I think it was called Life, I can't remember. But I remember he said, like, look, if you want an answer to this question, don't ask the question, Right. If you want an answer to, if you really do want an answer to why, ask not why did this happen, but how can I love the most in this moment? Mm. And it was so frustrating. I wanted to throw the book across the room when I read it, but it worked for me. Like it was the only thing that ever satisfied that curiosity of why, you know? And it's not like I could tell you, oh, well, now I know why. But I do feel like it was answered. You know, I feel like that, that, that spoke to me. Like it speaks to my heart, right? So, I, I mean, like you bring up the example of Job, and this is a kind of, you know, trope of commentary on the book of Job, that the book of Job could end with chapter 38, and it seems like perhaps in a first redaction it ought to have ended with chapter 38 when God shows up in the whirlwind, and in response to the various questionings of his creatures, he poses yet deeper questions still. And it's not because God is a cynic philosopher, or he's like this kind of shifty sage who tries to, um, you know, psychologize the experience and make you feel little by comparison. But I actually do think it's an education in questioning, or it's an education in living. Mm -hmm. Like, he's pulling out of you deeper questions. Because when we ask questions that are, you know, limited within a kind of narrow ambit, then we can only get answers which conform to the standard of those questions. And the Lord says, ask bigger questions. Ask bigger questions. At the end of the day, ask for me, and nothing less than me. And I think that, like, when when you're trying to search the depths of the divine wisdom, you know, to a certain degree or extent, you know that you're never going to sound them. You're never going to hit bottom. And that can be overwhelming. St. John Damascene, quoting St. Gregory of Nazianza, said that God is an infinite ocean of substance. So it's the type of thing, you know, we, we can swim all our lives long onto ages of ages. And so we, we want to be, you know, bold and magnanimous in the posing of questions, but to do so is terrible because it, it requires a certain vulnerability because it's going to challenge not only the way that you think, but also the way that you love and it's going to demand of you, yeah, something, yeah, just something, something big and bold and beautiful. And I think that kind of getting back to Christ, not that Christ has been absent, but to state Christ's name explicitly, you see this in the mysteries of his life, because the Lord isn't just simply teaching or isn't like pointing things out in a hyperdidactic fashion. He's inviting you into the story of salvation, which transpires through his living of it, you know, which is actually at work in his very flesh. You know, when you look at the passion, you can ask, why this? Why this? You can begin to answer. You'll never end answering, but you can begin to answer and say, I mean, you can see how much God loves us. You can see how dignified and how worthy is our human condition. You can see the stakes of sin, namely in that they kill God. You can see the destiny of man, namely in that we are meant to be divinized. You can see that dot, 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 and you can continue to meditate upon that until Jesus comes back in glory and then for all eternity. And that, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that we can comprehend, but I think that it's, it's, it's in that type of questioning that we actually grow in our capacity to love those with whom, you know, God has placed us or those to whom God, God has entrusted to us and things like that. To, to yep. me, whenever I try to work with this with people, I'm not so arrogant as to think I know the answer why. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing that kills faith is when people when people are suffering profoundly people religious people yeah. tend to go for the cheap why right well you're gonna learn a lot about yourself or maybe the lord gave you this cross of air so you can help others and it's like yeah okay or maybe god could have just taught me <laughs> you know like maybe yeah. I could he could have sent a sweet jacques philippe book my way and i could have learned it without the school of hard knocks and that's what like the heart of job right the heart of job is like all of these religious people with the perfect religious answer 
And God says, you better pray for them or I'm going to kill them because they lied about me. And you're like, holy crap, it is all straw, <laughs> right? Like you start to look at our best answers in comparison to the mystery with a capital M and they're always inadequate, right? There is um, a reflection in this book on uh, atonement theology written by Henry Nutcomb Oxenham, which is a great name, Anglican convert. He's quoting Job where Job is at his peak of complaining, like the, the fullest darkness that he goes. And he basically says, if there was a judge between me and God that could bring him into court as well as me, who could lay his hands upon both of us, I think is the, the Knox translation. Basically he's saying, I would be found not guilty and he would be found guilty. And this is the extreme like anguish of Job. And then Henry writes, and in Christ Jesus, we have the one who put his hand on divinity and his hand on humanity, who is the judge, but also is the merciful savior, you know? And you have this like unifying element in Christ Jesus that to me, like, I don't know if metaphysically we can answer the question of why suffering, but in the cross, there's an answer given that is bigger than our theology. Pope Benedict said it is the crucified Messiah is the fullest expression of God's omnipotence. And it's like, but I, I, I just want him to kill all my enemies and <laughs> to put me, to put some robes and crowns on my head. And isn't it really and, just a lack of faith. I'll just, if I just had more faith, then I'll just yeah. heal whatever problem. Oh gosh. That's the, or best. if I give God a hundred dollars, will he send me a thousand? Right. That kind of thing. I, I well, I mean, he won't be outdone in generosity. So <laughs> give this a uh, like, a subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the bell for a little. No, you know, it's funny the what you said, um, how people will constantly, that's like my life. People like constantly try to give me the little answers, even though I don't ask the questions, right? Like people, are, <laughs> people are always like, well, they, they're going to bring so many people to the Lord, right? That's always like an answer. Like when they yeah. see my, my two kids in the wheelchairs, they're going to bring so many people to the Lord. It's funny, like I found like, I think, we have so just categorically rejected suffering in our world. It's so hard for people to encounter it and other people even. Like it's just impossible yeah. for compassion now. They want to just immediately fix it, right? Like they want to fix it so that they don't have to be a part of it. And it's funny because it's like I, I constantly feel like I'm, um, I'm like trying to uh, basically console them about, about them seeing us, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. And I'm like, look, it's oh. okay. Look. Yeah, I'm not happy. I'm grumpy, but I'm joyful. You know, that's, that's everything's gonna be okay. Like trying to go to heaven. Thinking about this Christologically, Christ as the exemplar, mm -hmm. what, what in particular were you trying to focus on when you're talking about, yeah, atonement and saving us and all that? Yeah, I see your question and I see its interest, but I'm also going to use it as a bridge to get back to the point that we've just been making. Please do. I'm thinking How about, about that for a segue. Dang. Okay. Whammo. I was about to say whammy, but then I said blammo. So it came out. Um, words are hard. So <laughs> words are hard. Words are hard. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So in Romans 12, we've all heard this quoted. And we've all emblazoned it on a shirt at Franciscan University of Steubenville, <laughs> depending upon the ministries that we participated in. But that it's, you know, it's for us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, you know, to put on the very mind of Christ, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that there's some sense in which, like, we can think like Christ, unto Christ, in Christ, you know, whichever preposition you choose, it's basically going to work. Like, a lot of people will connect this with the way that the evangelical mission of the gospel begins, first with the words of St. John the Baptist, then with the words of our Lord himself, repent and believe in the gospel, and the word there, like the noun form of it, which comes across as a verb, is metanoia, which means something like, you know, kind of think beyond, or conceive beyond, or conceive in a whatever, a higher plane. And I think that we have the capacity, as human beings, to be assimilated to the Godhead. Okay, so we have a mind with which to know, and a heart with which to love, and God in his generosity imparts to us a share in his own knowledge of himself, and in his own love of himself. This is, you know, part of what we mean by being made to the image of God. And that sets us on a path, on a kind of trajectory. So not only are we capable of it, but it's also at work in us, and that's going to draw us further up and further in to the divine life, such that in heaven we'll abide at the heart of this Trinitarian communion by a kind of ongoing act of knowing and loving, which is God's own act of knowing and loving. But this is something that, you know, like that we experience now. So as Christians, we don't hold for delayed gratification so say no to all of these good things while on earth, and you can say yes to them, you know, in abundance later on. So diet now, gorge yourself later. Sure. No, that's not it. We, we think that it's the time that we spend here on earth is a kind of progressive acclimatization to the rarefied air of heaven so that we come in time to breathe and to live and to abide in the realities which will be 
our, our, yeah, our whole life. And so when it comes to like putting on the mind of Christ, I think that it's imposing the questions specifically in the life of prayer and of study, our kind of contemplative approach to reality, that we can develop a kind of sympathy with the divine plans and even appetite for them, which is crazy town, but which I think is true. And so, for instance, when St. Thomas talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit that perfects the virtue of charity, he describes it as wisdom. So here he's, he's taking the enumeration from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. And it's strange because charity is a kind of movement of the heart, whereas wisdom we would think is a movement of the mind. And yet he says that the deepest wisdom is the love which kind of abides in the other person and which has a kind of sympathy, a deep sympathy with their own interior life. And he uses this line from Pseudo Dionysius that in wisdom we suffer divine things and suffer in the sense of like those divine things are visited upon us, right? We, we kind of bear up or we kind of endure, or we kind of go through the divine things in such a way that they leave their mark on us, their impress upon us, and then we become shaped by them in turn. Such that, yeah, we can sympathize with the divine plans. And then we become more perfect agents or instruments in the unfolding of salvation in the here and now, which is wild to think. And so then we don't have to spend our whole life rebelling against, but we can spend our life abandoning ourselves too, even while recognizing that this stinks and this is awful. And I'd, I'd have done it otherwise, I can tell you that much, you know, but that as we permit ourselves to be carried along, that we can reconcile ourselves to it with a greater alacrity and, and like a greater zeal. And so then how does that not sound like Stockholm Syndrome? Well, it's all interpersonal. We're not just thinking about Christ. We're thinking with Christ. We're thinking in Christ. We have the very mind of Christ, right? And, and our Lord in his incarnate life, when you look at it from start to finish, it's basically one big constrained and anguished expression of how do I communicate to them the depths of my love, right? Like, should I remove the obstacles? But then they'll never know that there were obstacles in place. Should I permit them to encounter the obstacles, be wounded by the obstacles so that I can heal them in light of said obstacles? But then they will know that I could have removed the obstacles and they might subsequently blame me on account of the fact that I didn't. And yet it's like, ah, how do I, how do I, how do I make them know? And so he says, I'll just take it all. I'll just take it all from top to bottom, from start to finish. I'll live the whole of a human life. I'll endure it in every imaginable facet. And I will endure it such that it becomes transparent to my love, mm. such that it becomes a manifestation and communication of the divine love in human vesture, such that it's easier for them, it's nearer for them, it's humaner for them, so that they can assimilate it and then ultimately be conformed to it. And if they reject that, I mean, at the end of the day, they're free to do so, but that destroys me. But I'll even show them the way that that destroys me. I'll weep for them. I'll weep over them. I'll weep in them. And in that, I think, we, you know, you have the best invitation, an efficacious invitation, an invitation that takes you by the hand and draws you in it and says, all right, we're on the way. If you want to be other than on the way, you have to take a step apart. But just know that this train has left the station and it is bound for glory. Glory. I glory. Think, I think glory is the one concept that we have completely gotten rid of in the modern church. Like, I really do. I, I, I'm, every morning I just read. When I study scripture, I'm going through Luke. Coincidentally, it was the Feast of the Transfiguration and the event of the Transfiguration that I was going through and the, the repetition of glory before and after the Transfiguration. Like, God is glorious. And like, what, do you, what do you say? To prepare ourselves for the rarefied air? Or, you know, like, we don't know what it means to live in God's glory. We only know the human experience of trying to get glory and try to get it for ourselves and all this stuff. And so one of the objections that I, I will hear from this person in particular, but other people, is why is God so obsessed with his name and his glory? It seems like an egomaniac. And, and to which this is where I think metaphysics is actually the most helpful in evangelization. Because it's like, he's not just a really great guy. He is, he is being itself. He is all goodness, all perfection in his single act of being. So when you think about what does it mean to love God, the act of loving God makes you want to be like him, right? And he's so, like, and, and dwelling on him and his movements in, that he's revealed always, right? Giving him glory is the most natural thing we can do. Because he is the only one that is perfectly worthy. You know, all of our heroes are, are tainted heroes, except for our Lord, right? And our lady. Woo! But they're all like, you know, like, we, what, what is the phrase people say? Never meet your heroes, right? Yeah. And, and it's true. It is so true. Except for me. Uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this holds true still. I've met you a bunch of times. Dang it. Yeah, but I was never your hero. <laughs> That's why I was fine. Uh, no, but like, <laughs> the, yeah, th but think about that. But with God, 
like the glory of God. And this is really what the prophets and and kind of John Calvin's vein of Christianity, like you must never sacrifice the glory of God for human concerns. And I, I, I feel like as a church, that's what we've done. Like we wanted God to be so imminent that we, we started and ended with his imminence and we rejected his transcendence and thus the glory, the majesty, the grandeur of God. And so now we don't even, we can't appreciate his condescension. We can't appreciate the word being made flesh because it's like, of course, of course he should do that. We're us. Have you met us? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's part of the suffering as Christians when Christ strips us is he's stripping us of us ultimately thinking I'm such a great guy. Christ wanted me on his team. Right. And it's like, no, no, it's not that you were so awesome that he just had to have you or the stupid line that some people say at funerals, which is God wanted another angel you know, right. And, right. and all that. And I understand we grieve and, and try to process a grief, but like, no, it's the other way around. Right. God's the one who's the prime mover. And I, I don't know. For me, that has actually helped my own processing of suffering and grief, especially the grief of of loss and the, and the pain of loss is like. I don't know everything. I don't understand why, but I know if I look at him long enough, especially, you know, look upon him whom we have pierced, there's something transcendent about the mystery of God and the glory of God that I'm seeing even in the middle of this horribleness. And it's not teachable. It's not a learnable moment. It affects you in your inmost being is the only way you got to grab mystical language sometimes in order to kind of describe it. I don't know. One of the go-to images that I use for grief and like healing through grief is casseroles. So like when something <laughs> bad course. happens in your family, of course, this, this is what South real quick. You know, like people are all like, "Hey, we've got meals for you." Cheers. And then like people bring meals, and it's awesome. But there are a few friends who will just continue to bring that Pyrex dish of whatever casserole for months and months. Tuna like casserole. Someone gave us. There it is. Yeah. Tuna. Um, what for months and months beyond? And I think there's a kind of like a fidelity or show up in the depths of love, mm-hmm. which again, it doesn't necessarily address the question as we are posing it in propositional terms. It doesn't necessarily heal the pain or resolve the like conflicted anguish that we're experiencing in the moment, but it has a kind of sweet way of, I don't know, like kind of accompanying you through the experience to use somewhat overused terminology. And I think that in the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, in peculiar fashion, but throughout the course of his life, you know, in his conception, in his gestation, in his birth, in his presentation at the temple, and his being lost to his parents at the age of 12 for three days as a way by which to signal the coming passion, death, and resurrection, and all the things besides, like our Lord just continues to show up in our human condition for us, not in the abstract, right, not at a distance, not in a way that's somehow aloof or over-sanitized or yada yada and and such, but he shows up in the whole, you know, he shows up. He just continues to show up. And you think to yourself, I don't know, maybe, maybe this doesn't correspond to you know, the offer of divine life, or, or maybe this has no place in God's heart, or maybe this is in fact just obstacle and hindrance, and I need to get over, under, around, behind, or whatever it is. And then the Lord continues to show up in the midst of it and says, no, you can, I mean, you can live this, right? You can admit to this. You can be honest in this. It's like when you show up for prayer and you're like, all right, now's the time to be pious and devout. And you're like, instead, I'm just going to tell you that I'm angry and sad, and then I'm going to wait for you to make a move for the next 59 minutes. And the Lord's like, cheers, party on. You know, it's like, it doesn't have to be anything other than it is, which doesn't mean that like we go down to the chapel naked and say like, I am without shame. You know, you still have to put on clothes (laughs) and maybe like occasionally trim your beard and like look your best for the Lord because it matters, you know, but that, but that doesn't mean that you have to like contracept your thoughts and your your desires and your feelings yeah. and say like, this can't be possibly anything that has it. No, it's just, 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 you can communicate it to them and you can vet it with other friends and you can, you know, talk it through in the context of the Christian community and you can come to discover what it is that you really know and what you really love and what you're really feeling, because it's going to take time for you to sort that out and discern that. But you know that it has a place in the divine life because the Lord has taken it to himself. Mm-hmm. Just like, Period. <laughs> Period. End of sentence. Hey, Dave, why don't you throw us out to a quick break? We love being a part of the Ascension Press community, and we love hearing from you guys. As always, if you have any questions, email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. We'll be back in just a minute. Hello, my name is Father Mark Toops, author of the Rejoice Advent Meditation Series. And if this Advent you are looking for a peaceful encounter with God, I invite you to order a copy of Rejoice, an Advent pilgrimage into the heart of Scripture, year B. You can find out more at rejoiceprogram.com. God bless you.
And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knee Shall Bow. We want to invite you all to subscribe by text EKSP to 33777-33777. Those are two very holy numbers in the Bible. That's why we use them. <laughs> hey, anyone else think it's funny that Catholics also have Also our seven? lottery tickets? Also, yeah, works for lottery. <laughs> uh, no, that'll auto-subscribe you to our emails, and uh, we don't spam you. It'll be awesome. Also, when we have a seasonal podcast, it's good to know when we're coming up, so all the email stuff is uh, super helpful. Hey, do you guys ever think it's funny? I used this one time when I was debating a Protestant. I thought it was really funny. Discussing, not debating, where we were talking about the Bible. And he said, there are 66 books of the Bible. And I said, no, there are 73. And then we were arguing over that. And I said, yeah, but according to the Bible, which, which are holier numbers? Right? Seven, three? You, did not say, you didn't really say that, did you? I did. I absolutely did. I was, I was a joke. It wasn't like an infallible proof. But you know what? He was one of those rapture <laughs> guys. And he was like, one of those things. <laughs> it was it's just a nudge. It's just a nudge. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So uh, real quick, Dave, we're going to come back. Not real quick, but uh, we want to talk. Let's focus on something that stood out to you, which was more about God's glory. Yeah, well, okay. So, you know, it's interesting that this episode kind of took on the topic of suffering. And it's interesting and so fruitful that glory comes up in the midst of that topic, right? Because mm-hmm. I do think there is a movement in Catholicism and Christianity to trade what we think is God's glory for what might truly be right, and so like I've told, I've, I've complained to you about this before, Gomer, that you'll see like a Catholic speaker who who will be like, if we pray hard enough, then the Shekinah will fall down upon us right tonight, and we'll grab God's glory. And and I, and a few times I've seen this on YouTube, and you're watching it in the background, you see they're like four feet away from the tabernacle, and you're like, no, no, no. Dude, turn around. The Shekinah's right there. It might not look like what you want, right? It's not like going to have like gold flakes on it or anything like that, but that's where it is right there. And then you like have like, you know, the quote, was it St. Augustine who said, I looked in my deepest wounds and saw your glory or something and it dazzled me or something that God's glory is entirely different than what we can wrap our head around. And oftentimes it's in, it is in the suffering, right? It is in that when we see it the greatest, as opposed to, the relief of suffering or or something like that, or the miraculous, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So, yeah, I hadn't made the connection with, like, God's tabernacling glory in the Old Testament. Perhaps I ought to have. I mean, you can think about it in the setting of the book of Exodus, and here is a very significant and transformative experience for the people of Israel. It becomes, like, the kind of principal point of reference for them in terms of their national and religious identity. Uh, because it's the most profound experience of God's providence, and we could even say fatherhood, even though fatherhood isn't something that comes up a lot in descriptions of the Godhead in the Old Testament, but still, it's like they know God's care for them, God's solicitude for them, His love for them, and in a special way because of the Exodus. And the Exodus is an experience largely characterized by pain and suffering, and typically the people of God, as we do here now in the 21st century, just complain about it. So it's like, you know, Exodus 12 and 13, you've got plagues and then the rites of redemption and circumcision and, you know, Passover described in detail. The people leave, they cross the Red Sea in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, they sing a song of thanksgiving, Exodus 16, they start complaining. <laughs> but but all through the desert, over the course of the next 40 years, you know, God tabernacles with them, you know, his glory abides with them. And you see that they're constantly tempted to go back to the life they had before insofar as it was known, insofar as it was, to a certain extent, comfortable, insofar as it doesn't pose before them the terrible pain and suffering of this current pilgrimage or this current exodus. And yet God shows himself sovereign and shows himself provident specifically in being with them. And yes, in providing for their needs and affording them the opportunity to ask him that their needs be provided for, which I think is an important step. But yeah, furnishing them with the next step so that way they can proceed towards the promised land and come into the fullness of, you know, the glory itself. And I think that in our own lives, we we know very little about what's happening in the moment, except that God is near. And even in knowing that God is near, it's not an especially consoling or like redeeming experience of God is near. It's just like, you're near, but I almost wish that you weren't near. It's like that creepy person who hovers by the hospital bed with like the simpering face. And you're like, say something, say nothing, say whatever, just leave, you know, just leave, just leave, you know? And then you're like, wait a second, maybe it's better that you are here. Cause like an hour from now, I'm probably going to thank you for it. But right now I'm just feeling a little bit boy. So yeah, I, I think that like the invitation to God's glory is something like that. I read a book called Wandering in Darkness by Eleanor Stump. And I remember having whatever, 
move on, Gregory. So um, <laughs> she she describes these these kind of in narrative fashion these stories of Old Testament figures who have their hearts grown by their difficulty. And it's not like an easy input-output machine where yeah. it's like, you input trial and suffering and I will output sweet life lessons. Sincerely, God. <laughs> no, because that's crass and dumb and none of us want that. But it's like, okay, you are honest before your experience of life and I will draw you deeper into communion. And you will come to discover that the horizon of your existence has expanded and you have come to see it now as a meeting place of, you know, imminent goods for sure. I mean, Job 42, he gets everything back in a kind of weird fashion. It's like, here's a house, and here's more kids, and they're better somehow. <laughs> it's like, are kids replaceable? You guys will have to form me of that later. Um, <laughs> but 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 in the sense that like you see where like heaven breaks in, or yeah. you see where the kingdom of God is now at work and alive, and you know, proffering to you an invitation for a deeper experience of life. And that's like a kind of beginning of the glory or beginning of the glorification, the exaltation, the whatever else that conducts us onto the fullness of life. And I think that, yeah, that's like. Yeah, everyone has their stories as to how it's true. We formulate our questions with that in mind, and we look for the glory with that disposition, that this is going to be beyond what I'm currently conceiving of, because part of what it entails is that my mind be transformed, right? And that my horizons be expanded. So of course, it's not going to fall within the compass of my present experience, because my present experience has to be grown into order to accommodate the sovereign work which the Lord is about. And at the very least, I can say, yeah, I'm here, somewhat unwillingly, and certainly complainingly, that's a new adverb, but I'm here. All right, so take that. Please take it. <laughs> Please take it. Now, now, now. There's a um, comedian and actor, Stephen Fry. He's British. He's a new atheist dude. You probably recognize him if you saw him. One of his big things is like he cannot believe in God. And if he were to meet God, he would basically spit in his face because of how poor he managed the universe. And for him, it's no, the only thing that makes sense is there is no God. It's whirling bits of atoms. Otherwise, there's hell to pay for some being that claims to have providence over it all and to have allowed so much evil to happen. He gives a famous example of a worm that is born in a child's eye and, and all this stuff. And Bishop Barron and Jordan Peterson, a handful of other people who are arguing with new atheists, that they, they use that. They bring that up. Like, you know, when you have the whole Brothers Karamazov, like, would you have this whole perfect world if it meant torturing a little girl, you know? And he's like, no, I wouldn't do that. And he's like, yeah, look at the world that God created. So what's the line? It's, it's not God I have a problem with. It's this whole world of his. So it's like, it would be better if it were a savage tooth and claw, because then I can say there's nothing behind it. And then you say, but there's an all good benevolent power behind it. And I have to worship that power. This, this problem becomes so acute that to me, it doesn't make sense unless the cross. Like to me, the cross is is the pulling together of all it's C.S. Lewis is the God on the dock, right? Like, and to me, it's not an answer to a proposition, right? Which we want as no, creatures who want to know, right? It's not just a straightforward answer. It's something deeper, something that Job had, right? Job saw the face of God and it changed everything in the story. And to me, like there's something like when, when Jesus says, you know, the, the high priest and the chief priests and stuff, they say the whole world goes after him. And then at that moment, the Greeks come up to Andrew. Andrew goes up to Peter. Peter goes up to Jesus and said, some Greeks would like to see you. And then Jesus says, now is the hour come. Behold, I am very troubled. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this very hour that I came into the world. Father, glorify your name. And he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And like that passage is so mysterious to me and so weird. Like, that's the part that you wanted to talk about, God? Like, the voice from heaven? Like, don't you want to right. be like, hey, talk to the Greeks, because pretty soon the Greeks are going to take over this Jewish thing called the church. Right? Like, like, there's like a million things running through my brain of what's happening. But, like, the more you see, the more you look at Luke, right, in Luke's gospel, when he talks about his glory, he reveals, like, when he says, you are the Christ of God, Jesus then declares how he's going to suffer and die. Right? Like, it's at that moment. Right. And then you have the transfiguration and you see him in his glory. And what is he talking about? How he will, he's talking about his exodus or his departure that must take place in Jerusalem. He's talking about his death, right? Like all of these things. And when I first saw that line from Cardinal Ratzinger or Pope Benedict, I was like, no, that's no creation or the resurrection. It was what reveals the glory of God in its fullness. The two religions that take suffering absolutely seriously, correctly, I think, is either Christianity or Buddhism. And it's either or you know 
and to see the suffering messiah as the god man right it to me is the only thing that harmonizes all the loose ends and i don't even get all the ways that they're harmonized but i just see there is a symmetry there that i myself cannot think my way into or out of i just have to behold and that's what you do with glory right you just behold it so which one are you going with buddhism or christianity which you know you know i'm happy you asked i'm calling myself a buddhist christian for now a buddhistian <laughs> a buddhist christian <laughs> No, I like I don't it. think I the right it. answer is to annihilate desire in order to annihilate suffering. And I don't think the greatest good is not here, not there, right? But and it is a a drop to be assimilated into the divine spirit or whatever. It makes sense that the sufferings at the end will all be aligned for something that I can't even mentally understand. Yeah. Well, Gregory, thank you so much for being with us. I've never listened to an episode, but I'm gonna listen to this one for sure. You, you dropped some one liners where I was like, wait, hold on, let me write this down. <laughs> hey my joy thanks for having me on yeah and sorry if we depressed you even more than your no. standard melancholic state right no yeah. no i mean it was it was a fruit of the last three years in freeburg it was an invitation into the desert and it was like you're gonna develop contemplative habits of mind and heart or you're just gonna go crazy and i was like can i choose both <laughs> and the lord was like certainly you may my friend and i was like sweet sweet jesus could you um, just explicitly tell us you're okay or maybe we should <laughs> <laughs> i'm okay it's just the church and the german-speaking world is an absolute deathscape oh, yeah. and uh wow. it's god or nothing and it's really god or nothing and sometimes that's that's sad yeah. but that's okay because we're his yeah. gosh now all i want to do is have another episode about the church and the german-speaking world that's all <laughs> i want to talk about Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to talk about evangelization? Let's have a synod on germanality. What is going on? <laughs> what is going on? God help us all. Well, thank you, Father Gregory, for carving out time in your in your busy day. Thank you also for representing the Franciscan cross on your wall behind your Dominican habit there. It's beautiful. Let's go, baby. Oh, yeah. Yep. Cheers. All right. God bless you all. Uh, just a quick reminder. Join our email list, 33777-TEX-EKSB, those letters. And we'll get you hooked up and so that you can stay and continue to journey with us on the seasonal walk through Catholic evangelization and discipleship.